Welcome to the Plymouth Meeting Church Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope the following message touches your hearts and minds. How you guys doing? Doing good? All right. A couple days ago, uh, Bob Hip and myself, we went to Messiah University for a church gathering. Our denomination gathered. We, we call it National Conference. And and uh, there we, we worship and we do a lot of business and there's educational sessions and credentialing and lots of fellowship and, and, and stuff like that. And um, we meet at Messiah University in a gym and you have to use your imagination. You know, there's a bunch of chairs, you know, set up and everything, but there's also tables, different organizations and programs and things like that. They, they bring a table to, to sponsor, you know, what they're up to. There's literature and, and uh, if, they're, if they're smart, they put out like a bowl of goodies so that you can go over and, you know, grab a, a treat. Um, one of the, the tables is called uh, Hope for the Children. Is anybody familiar with Hope for the Children? Yeah, I wasn't really super aware of it. I have their, their spring newsletter here, Hope for the Children. And uh, they are based out of Myerstown, Pennsylvania. I'll have this over here on the side. You can check it out. Uh, but I would like to start by telling you about Hope for the Children. It was started in, in 2003. A group of volunteers, they were responding to needs uh, in, in India, specifically children in India. And they decided that they wanted to partner with one orphanage over there in northeast India. And this orphanage at the time, they were taking care of, of these orphans who like literally were forced to watch their fathers dig their own grave. And so that's the type of situation that they're kind of stepping into. And so Hope for the Children, they partner with this orphanage, and they help to provide needs and get these kids to school and, and, and all of that. Over the years, Hope for the Children has expanded. They are now international, and they work in India, Bolivia, and Nepal. And once again, if I'm, I'll put this newsletter over here. You can, you can check it out. Now, as people of, of good news... Um, you know, a big part of our big gospel would definitely include wanting to see all children everywhere be able to grow up, and not in isolation or alienation or loneliness, but to be a part of a family, to be in community, at least uh, some sense of strong, holistic, healthy community, family. And along those lines... You know, for me personally, you know, adoption is, is, is a, something I, I, like, I put up high. Like, adoption is, is wonderful. And in the New Testament, adoption is a spiritual metaphor that the Apostle Paul uses, describing how, like, you know, our spiritual state, before we meet Christ, it's like we're, we're outside the bounds of belonging. And then we meet Jesus and we're, we're brought in. Romans 3 exclaims, we are justified through faith by grace. Okay? And it's all because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. In Christ, our identity is restored. We are sons. We are daughters of God. Perhaps we could say it like this. Our sinship is replaced with sonship. We're adopted. We're, we're justified. We're, we're made right with God. God is putting things back together. 
And the good news is we're justified by Christ. Let me repeat that again. We're justified by Christ. The cross has spoken. And what this means is that we don't have to justify ourselves. We do not have to prove ourselves. We can have relational peace and rest with God. But if you're anything like me, <laughs> if you're anything like me, you're like, actually, no, I do want to prove myself. I, I, I do have to show up and, and prove myself. Like, like deep down inside, I got to show up. I, I got to prove. I got to perform. I, I, got, I always have to be right. I want to be successful. And so sometimes without even taking time to define what does success mean in the kingdom of God, we just like start snow plowing, bulldozing through. And you know what? Yeah, we, we end up missing the mark. We don't bend towards the kingdom of God. We mess up. We sin. And then it feels like we just have to prove ourselves to God or others or ourselves all over again and round and round and round we go. So you know what, church? This morning, we're all, gonna, we're all going to get a lesson in grace. We need a lesson in grace. And don't let my title fool you. I am both teacher and definitely a student this morning because I'm still learning about grace every single day of my life. If you've been tracking with us, uh, we've been borrowing from a, a, a pastor named Tim Chester. He gives four diagnostic statements that he just beautifully puts them so well. Like It's like too good not to share with you. And so there's so many different statements that we could say about God, truth statements about God, but we kind of boil them down. Let, let's, let's pick four and start there. Here's four diagnostic statements to kind of take a look at, at, our, uh, at our belief. We talked about God is great. And if that's true, what that means is we don't have to be in control. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. God is good. We don't have to look elsewhere. And today, we're going to take a look at this. God is gracious. And if that is true then that means we don't have to prove ourselves. And so as we look at God's grace today, we're going to take a look at the parable of uh, the, the prodigal son, the sons in Luke 15. And to set the stage in Luke 15, this parable is actually a part of a, a larger string of parables. And, and the whole thing that sparked all of this was actually there was these powerful religious men, these religious scholars... They were upset with Jesus. They were complaining about him. They were grumbling about Jesus because he ate with tax collectors and social outcasts. People with questionable reputation. And because of this growling around, this is, this is why we have the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sons. That's what, we're, that's what we're going to take a look at today. Uh, so um, I would like to just pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, may the meditation of our heads and heart be acceptable to you. Form us today. Reform us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
Luke 15, starting with verse 11. There's a father, and he has two sons. The younger son, if you know the story, he wants his portion of the estate. He goes to dad, and he says, I want my portion of the inheritance. And as some commentaries like to point out, that's kind of like saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because normally this wouldn't pass on until father passed on. But the father, he certainly has options on the table. He could disown his son, dis disinherit his son, something like that. But he decides to honor his son's demand. And so the son gets his portion of the estate. The son liquidates the assets. He's flushed with cash. And you know what? Selling land in this time period, like family land, your family's land, selling that, that that's not a good look culturally. Perhaps shameful. Land is to stay in the family. That's like the value, the, the, the heritage, your, your, your past, your present, your, your future. Your kids' kids are supposed to be working this farm. Over near Crossroads, Pennsylvania, which is southern York County, uh, there is historically some Smith land, my, like my branch of Smith. Like, it's all been sold off, and different people gave away the farms and things like that. You know, make your way down the line to, to my generation. No, that, yeah, the, the, the land is gone. It, it belongs to somebody else now. But historically... You know, 100 years ago, there was a couple Smith farms in southern Lancaster County. My dad grew up on, on that farm, one of the farms over there. And so, you know, I, I kind of can get it. Like, there's land that, yeah, I don't need to go on there. But so, like, he sells the family land. And what he does next is what? He goes to a distant country, and he squanders his wealth. Wild living is what the NIV says. Wild living, living, he's burning right through it. And there's research online that, that points to, you know, lottery winners, like plenty of lottery winners, they go bankrupt. They just burn right through their cash. The piggy bank, it turns out, is not bottomless. Oh, yeah. There's an important point in the story, a big fact. There's a famine going on in this land. All right, multiple causes. Uh, what 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 causes famine? It could come from a bunch of different things. It might perhaps come about sudden. But my guess is, like, famine probably had some warning signs. All right, you probably saw it coming if you were paying attention. Famines cause widespread hurt. They don't stop at the county line or the state line or the or the country. You know, like. Famines can really do a lot of big damage. So he runs out of money. He's in need. And the only thing he could really do is work for a pig farmer. Now, in context, it is assumed that this man is Jewish. And that, that's a pretty low job for a Jew because pigs are unclean. So he's super hungry. He's working. He's feeding these pigs. And he just strongly desires pig food. No help from anyone. In a way, perhaps we could say he's kind of like a self-made orphan. He's backed himself into a corner. No, nobody's helping him. This is where he's at. Now we'll pause and ask, can we relate to this son? 
Some of us have wild stories. Perhaps we can relate to some of those big, those big thematic stories. We can relate to the younger son. However, you know, maybe, maybe we can put our big testimonies aside. I don't think we always have to have a big wild story in order to relate to the son. Sometimes in our own small, quiet way, we find ourselves, you know, living at the bottom of our heart. So this is what we're going to do today. In your, your bulletin handout, there's a couple fill-in-the-blank questions. And so today, we're going to check in with our hearts. I just have a few questions we'll walk through uh, throughout the morning here today. Question number one is this. Does your heart reject God? Now, at first, that might sound like a, a shotgun blast of a, a question. Does your heart reject God? Well, of course not. Like, no. Well, I guess that, that could be true. That, that is a very important question to ask. But I'm taking it this morning, and I invite you to as well, is, is more so like, like, sometimes we're like, nah, God, I'm, I'm good. I'll take my portion, and I'll leave. It's kind of like saying, God... I really wish you weren't here. I, 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 God, I wish you were dead. Or maybe, perhaps you're in a place where you kind of appreciate your Christian values and principles and, you know, you enjoy the Sunday school stories, but now you're just like, I'm good. I'm ready to move on. Question number two. Do you squander the gifts God has given you? Do you squander the gifts God has given you? The younger son, he had this advanced blessing. He could have restarted himself, invested that money. He could have done a lot of good things. He ended up wasting everything. Question number three, do you ignore warning signs of your own context and situation? Do you ignore warning signs of your own context and situation? The word intelligence means to read between the lines. And sometimes we are just so not good at, at reading between the lines. We're, we're not listening. And what ends up happening as we reflect on this parable this morning, is that we end up craving, quote, pig food. We crave for things that we thought it would never be possible for us to even crave. But here we are because we've uncritically just dismissed all of the warning signs. We've backed ourselves into a corner. God, how did I get here? Where did all these dents come from? Flat tires. Goodness. Question number four. Checking in on our heart. Do you know situations can be really big teachers? And are you willing to learn? Back to the story. The younger son comes to his senses. He turns his mind around. And he's, he's like, you know what? Servanthood... On dad's farm is better than this. And so what's happening is repentance. Repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change of behavior. A change of heart and mind that lead, leads to a change in behavior. 
He's turning around. He's like, actually, this is not the kingdom. Over here is the kingdom. I'm turning my direction. I am not flourishing as a human. Over here, I'm flourishing. I'm making that turn. Repentance. And so he decides to head home. Now that turn isn't always quick in our life. You may have heard that the illustration sometimes. It's like a big ship in the ocean. It takes a while to turn. But it's, it's plugging away. It makes that turn. And so the son makes his way home. And uh, we, we find out that the father has been looking. The father, we just imagine him like Pennsylvania Dutch front porch in a rocking chair kind of thing. At least, you know, sometimes that's how I imagine it. But he's looking for his son. He sees his son. He has a vision of his son. He sees his son. He's looking for his son. He's filled with compassion. He's like, that's my boy. And the son, or excuse me, the father just picks up and runs. He runs after his son. Which, you know, a footnote to that is grown men in this time period do not run. Children run. Here's a father taken off after his son. And he embraces his boy. And it's like, actually, he's not disowned one ounce. There's no violence, no injury to this relationship whatsoever. Not one ounce of, of, uh, of being disowned. And the, the, the parable gets really shocking. The scandalous grace of the father. Because all of this would have sounded so wild to the original audience. Now, who typically honors who in this story? The father wastes no time bringing honor to his son. He's like, you're home. I love you. I'm going to shower you with blessings. Here's a robe. Here's a ring. We're going to have a party. That's what the father does. Question number five. Do you really believe God is gracious? By the way, the father in this parable is God. Do you believe that God is gracious? That God is looking for you? That God has compassion for you? That he's pursuing you? Do you believe that father wants to embrace you? Is he really this gracious? Or, or, no, I have to work for this. Let me earn this. I want to be, I deserve to be seen. Let me earn my keep. Let me work hard so that you accept me. Let me work, like, let me just try and try and try to be so good. Like, I will earn your approval, Father. This parable just blows that whole mindset up. Father is gracious, and he is looking, and he is ready to embrace us. Now, elsewhere on the farm, there's an older brother. And the older brother hears this music and dancing that's happening. Okay? We might call it a shindig. There's, there's something going on, all right? Oh, wait, what's that smell? Beef barbecue? Hot dogs? Like, is that popcorn? Dad got the popcorn machine out? What? What is going on? His emotion is anger. He gets angry, hostile, irritated, enraged. His reaction is that he refuses to join the celebration. And so after a while, the, the father figures out, you know what? 
my older son is not coming in. So the father goes out and he pleads with his older brother. Now look at some of the language here. This is what the older brother says. He's, he's like, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders, okay? A couple things are being revealed here. The older son sees this relationship more as like contractual. It reveals like a performance-based lifestyle. This older son, he's made rightness manageable. He's followed the rules. More so out of dread than joy. But look how good he looks. Perhaps he sees things in, in terms of like uh, blessings or rewards in terms of like, hey, I do good, you bless me. I do good, you bless me. And maybe we can start to picture, you know, yeah, his, his identity is not sonship or even a partner. He says he's been slaving away. He's, he's desperately trying to prove himself. Question number six. Do you have anxiety that you have to prove yourself? Are you desperate to prove yourself? You're anxious to. Church, transactional, contractional framework, that drives our heart into a posture of restlessness. I love how Tim Chester puts it. He's like, some weeks you may feel as if you pull it off, and other weeks it all seems so fragile, as if it might shatter. And so you live in a constant state of stress and busyness, always striving to put in another great performance, always worried that the charade might crumble. And then in the parable, notice that the older brother assumes that the younger brother was involved with prostitution. All right? That may or may not be true. We haven't heard that yet. While living is what, what we've heard so far. The older brother assumes prostitution is involved. But you know what? Don't we do this too? So let's check in on our heart. Number seven, do you pridefully compare yourself to others? Do you pridefully compare yourself to others? And by the way, there is an answer key on somewhere in the bulletin on the back or something like that. Do we compare ourselves to others? When, when we misunderstand grace, we look at others and we're like, ah, I'm better than them. At least I'm not that. They're worse. They're wild. I'm better. We get out the grade book. How many gold stars do I have? Sometimes being a pastor, you hear other other churches and it's like, wow, like they grew like 40 people last year. It's like, whoa, 40 people. We sent out like five mission trips, five mission teams. It's like, whoa, that's awesome. We have this enormous worship band. Wow, that's awesome. You start to compare. You start to compare. And it's hard. It's hard, right? We look at others. We look at others. We get jealous. We compare. Comparison is the thief of all joy. Do we pridefully compare others to ourselves? But then Father gives this really important lesson. He says sometimes, maybe most of the time, 
we really misread the situation. Verse 31, the father says, My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. We misread situations. We misunderstand grace. And so this parable, it challenges our, our understanding of God's grace. On paper, grace is a simple teaching. You know, it's, a, it's an easy equation, perhaps. On paper, it, it looks great, but man, it can be so hard to get inside of here, inside of here, as, as a standard operating framework. And further, this, this parable, it challenges how we define what does faithful success look like? What does influence look like in the kingdom of God? It stretches our approach of like, how do we handle ministry, the burdens of ministry and, and carrying each other's burdens and things like that? How do we represent in the kingdom of God? It pushes us to, to really see how much God the Father values relationship. And again, to be out of relationship to be out of bounds. That's to be lost. That's the Bible's language. And so, question number eight, I ask again, do you, do you believe God is gracious? Do you believe you don't have to prove yourself? That you can come to Jesus, and He receives you, and you say, Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, you are Savior. Here I am. And you don't need to prove yourself to yourself. You don't need to prove yourself to others. You don't need to prove yourself to God. Because Christ is the one who justifies our, ourselves, justifies us. Now, if you're thinking and asking, okay, how is this possible? Well, let me tell you the good news. Romans 3, starting around verse 21, it says that righteousness, being declared right, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, right? No, like, no boundaries there. No difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God's long mission of redemption and restorative justice has entered into the world 2,000 years ago. It entered into the world in a brand new way through the person of Jesus Christ. God's mission of putting things back together, it comes through the faithfulness of Jesus. It's, it's, it's His grace. It's His work. It's His faithfulness. And He is the one who makes salvation, redemption, restoration, healing, peace, Jesus is the one who makes all of that possible, a living reality to all who believe. You are declared right with the Father because of Jesus. You are justified freely by His grace, which means if that is true, you don't have to prove yourself. You're justified with Christ. The cross has spoken. Jesus gave up His position so that we can have a position in the kingdom of God. We are children of God. We don't need to listen to the orphan spirit because the orphan spirit is contractional. It's constantly on survival mode. 
orphan spirit is restless, but Father is gracious, and he's looking for you, and he loves you. And God shows up in the whirlwind. Amen. Father is gracious. We don't need to prove ourselves. And that means we can rest. And out of that framework of relational rest and peace and freedom, you can seek out the Father's kingdom. You can seek out the Father's righteousness. You can seek out the abundant life. And so church, as we close here, as people of good news, I believe part of our big gospel vision is to see all people, men, women, and children, everyone everywhere, to be able to grow up, not in isolation or loneliness, but we want everyone to belong to the Father's family. As Jesus says elsewhere, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And Jesus invites you. He invites you. He invites you. He invites all of us to ask the Father to send us out into the harvest field. And so let's close in prayer. Father, forgive us when we misunderstand grace so much. We get trapped in performance-based living. We get twisted up so much because we think we have a contract with you. Some sort of prosperity arrangement sometimes that, that if we do good, you give us goodies. If we do good, you, you, you give us a seat at the table. But Father, may we come to you, our identity as children. We don't have to work for this because Jesus worked. We don't have to perform because Jesus performed. We can rest. And there are, quote, orphans, so to speak, God, who are out there. They have yet to meet grace. They are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so may we just be authentic people of grace, compelled by love, speakers of truth, who broadcast this, this announcement, this good news, that you, Father, you're looking with compassion. You're pursuing, and you're ready to embrace them with so much grace. And may we all carry that posture. May we be ready to give out the ring and the robe and to throw shindigs, Lord. Father, may we rest so deeply in grace. Breathe it out. May you seriously just wreck our hearts with grace. May we be reflections of that. Thank you so much, God. Thank you for this grace. It is amazing. In your name we pray.